Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, Lil. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to the Bad Taste Crimecast. I am Janelle. I'm Vicky. And we're here to bring you something amazing to keep your mind off of reality. Yes. <laughs> uh, we are coming to you once again from our respective homes. Uh, <laughs> we're still in like COVID um, lockdown. I mean, it's not really lockdown anymore, but you yeah. know, we're still being safe. <laughs> We're trying to be safe. I mean, there's only yeah. so much you can do when other people don't listen. So, <laughs> Yeah, right. If this is your first time listening, a special hello to you. I am pretty excited about today's episode. Should be a good one. Oh, you are? I thought you were going to hate me for picking it. <laughs> I, I did. You know what? It's that same cycle that we've talked about before where it's like, man, she picked this really weirdly specific thing. And then it turns out I can find <laughs> something that <laughs> is totally fine. Yeah, this topic, I feel there's a lot you could cover. <laughs> there is, yeah. But first, let's head over to the newsroom. So we are going to start off today with some COVID news, because we haven't done that in a while. <laughs> That's true. We try to forget about the Black Plague. <laughs> we do. But this one I found really interesting. It's actually coming to us from Spain. So in Spain, a 38-year-old man has been arrested for using social media to spread misinformation about the COVID-19 crisis. He is classified as a uh, COVID-19 denier. Oh, boy. Which is something I never thought I would have to say, but apparently I do. <laughs> <laughs> you really think you weren't gonna have to say that <laughs> yeah i i don't know i was just like you know i think as most people do most people are rational and think this is a real thing but you know every day i'm proven wrong oh, on that front Becky, <laughs> you sweet sweet summer child you should know better <laughs> so he would go onto social media he was 
saying that healthcare and the media were uh, misleading or I'm sorry, we're leading a COVID farce. And he was urging people to uh, attack politicians, saying things like, quote, all of this would be solved with the shot to the back of Pedro Sanchez's head, end quote. And Pedro Sanchez is the Spanish prime minister. Guys, can we stop with the, the shooting of people? please? Yeah. Or yeah. even just the illusion <laughs> to shooting of people. Uh, the man actually went one step further, and he was calling nursing homes, hospitals, football clubs, and the media posing as a public health official to spread false data regarding the COVID pandemic. And if that wasn't enough, he is alleged to have threatened to burn down a local newspaper office and spread slander about the military emergencies unit, which is sort of like Spain's special forces. Mm-hmm. or armed forces. The charges he's facing include usurpation of public functions, threats, incitement to hatred, and slander against authorities and public officials. It is worth noting that Spain has had one of the highest case rates in Europe with nearly 440,000 cases and over 29,000 deaths. So they are taking this very seriously, as I think they should, mm-hmm. especially for somebody who's like, very blatantly trying to incite violence and uh, spread misinformation. I'm glad that he has been taken into custody. Uh, we'll see what happens with this case. Obviously, he's not been convicted with anything, only charged. But I was like, wow, this is a uh, COVID-19 denier taking it to the extreme <laughs> on this one. Yeah. So just don't do that, guys, because I feel like you probably <laughs> face similar uh charges in the u.s i don't know maybe they've they've i don't know (laughs) they've been arresting people for uh perpetrating biological warfare uh for like coughing yeah for purposefully Mm -hmm. yeah so we'll see what happens i don't know if any of these charges will stick when they finally get to court because this is kind of a new thing as far as charging people that are not take I I don't want to say not taking it seriously, but almost like I don't know doing doing some weird shit like this. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I I know I don't know if it's necessarily not taking it seriously, but being like, well, it's not going to affect me is more the the route that yeah. I'm seeing. Yeah, we're going to move on to Netflix and kill, and in a very rare moment, we are actually going to revisit something. Uh-huh. that we've talked about previously. If you're a listener to the show, you'll recall this because at the time when it was announced, I was very excited about it. It is a documentary called Class Action Park about a New Jersey water park that opened in 1978 called Action Park. Is this bringing back memories for you, Janelle? <laughs> Yes, yes, I remember talking about it because I was just flabbergasted that somebody would go to a park that was so not working. <laughs> yeah. So the reason we're talking about this again is because it is being released in September on HBO Max, which means I might have to consider getting a subscription to HBO Max just to watch this. I did uh, get one. Did you? <laughs> and oh. it has more than just HBO on it. It has like Crunchyroll and uh, I think it's AMC or TMC, one of the classic movie channels. So, oh, really? I think it's worth it. There's there's like a whole bunch of stuff on there that's not just HBO. 
Well, that's good to know because I've been trying to figure out the difference because HBO has all these platforms that they're trying to condense down into one and it's a whole other thing. But they are releasing it on HBO Max uh, in September. Just a little uh, refresher for those of you who have no idea what I'm talking about. So the documentary Class Action Park, it was made by Seth Porges and uh, Chris Charles Scott. It focuses on a New Jersey water park that opened in 1978 called Action Park. It's most known for a number of injuries and deaths that occurred at the park, uh, forcing its closure in 1996. Former employees remember mostly the violations of labor laws and having to run rides that weren't safe to begin with. And an interesting um, article that I found from NPR says, quote, according to those who were there, the rides built without relevant know-how or concern for safety, took out teeth, dislocated shoulders, gashed foreheads, and laid down friction birds all along arms and legs. And of course, there was the death uh, that happened at the water park. Three people drowned in the wave pool. One person was thrown onto some rocks that the park had been asked to remove. And one person was electrocuted from falling into some water near some uh, some submerged machinery. And of course, the cherry <laughs> on the Sunday is that the liability insurance the owners had purchased was fake. So of course it was <laughs> a whole host of things adding to this crazy story of this insane water park. I am so still so looking forward to this. This has been the one thing I've been watching out for for months to come out. So I can't wait to jump in. I hope you guys take a look at it and just see how wild this was. Don't jump into the part that's submerged underwater. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah. It, that's so crazy. I know. And it makes me wonder, like, did they... Is it was it a piece of machinery that was supposed to be submerged underwater, or did they just stick right? electricity in water? <laughs> There's so many questions I have. It's a new ride called uh, "Fake Suicide in a Bathtub." <laughs> oh you my god, that's <laughs> awful! Oh, live it up to the name of the show. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was. I just went on a binging of a bunch of because there's been a, a few new series that have come out in the past few weeks on Netflix that I've been kind of binging while yeah. I've been pretending to do homework for school. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is that part of the show where we say content may not be appropriate for all listeners, but actually, it's. I mean, in the scheme of things, probably a lighter episode, as we like to say. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's as light as it's going to get. It's going to be like murder light. Um, murder so. light. <laughs> murder light, like Pedialyte. No. <laughs> yeah. Janelle, do you want to tell us what we're talking about today? Sure thing, chicken wing. So <laughs> I um, have been doing a lot of research. Again, I just can't stop. Also, it's part of like my new job now. So <laughs> yeah. Um, I decided that I wanted to kind of look more into um, the way that groups kind of handle getting into legislation. So basically like lobbying groups. And I had read a few articles uh, recently about lobbying groups because I watched that net. No, maybe it wasn't Netflix. It was HBO documentary called The Swamp, which is if you remember when um, he who shall remain unnamed was elected, <laughs> mm. they made the statement about draining the swamp. And so this documentary kind of talks about lobbying and where the money is 
and where the money goes and how things get through uh, to legislation. Yeah. So one of the organizations in particular that has or had, I should say, it's not as powerful as it used to be, had a stranglehold on Washington was ALEC, which I think we've mentioned before in a couple other episodes. Yeah. But it is called the American Legislative Exchange Council. And they are a crazy group that we're going to talk a little bit about. And we're going to talk about some crimes that they have committed. And there is a very long list, but I am going to just kind of tell you a few. Um, But I highly recommend going and um, looking into them a little bit more because they have a very, very interesting history. And they work with a lot of people and companies. And it is just... A rabbit hole that you could fall into forever. I feel like that's the case with a lot of these lobbying investigations where it's like there's so much like crisscross of things. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, and it's like there's just the the number of organizations and people that are involved in these things is so vast that it's really hard to like tell the story in a really concise (laughs) you know, straight line way, because it just is all over. It really is a rabbit hole when you start looking into it. It is. It very much is. So Mm -hmm. we're going to start a little bit with the history of ALEC. ALEC was actually founded in 1945 in Chicago as the Conservative Caucus of State Legislators. Now, its original purpose was to, (laughs) because this is 1945, this is when um, environmental things kind of started to happen. So their Mm -hmm. original Purpose was to block the EPA and any actions that the EPA started to have. And they were also looking to stop regulation on wages and price controlling. So if you're thinking about, you know, a lot of corporate control and the want to break up monopolies uh, by the government, they were like, no, 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 we want those monopolies. And they didn't want any sort of unionizing or any sort of governmental regulations on like minimum wage. Of course they did. So that's where, that's where that was coming from. Yeah. But in 1975, they actually changed their name to be more likable and became registered as a federal nonprofit agency. So they changed it because conservative back in this time period was actually kind of looked on as more of a, a group of wackadoos, uh, for lack of a better term. Oh, my God. So if you were – I mean, honestly, some people still really adhere to that today. But if yeah. you were, went by conservative or you alluded to the term conservative, uh, people automatically thought you were insane. Um, so <laughs> It's so <laughs> different to get from today. From that. <laughs> exactly. Um, people now wear it as a badge of honor. Um, yeah. But they really, really wanted to get away from that. So they changed their name to ALEC. Now, they also registered as a federal nonprofit agency, which is a key point because if you know anything about nonprofit organizations, they get a little bit of leeway. So Mm -hmm. this is what is going to kind of help aid them with the uh, criminal acts that they will commit. So by 2011, the number of ALEC legislative members had reached 2,000. Now, this includes more than 25% of all state legislators nationwide. So they are wow. not they are not just um welcoming legislators. They are welcoming 
corporations into this. So this is a marriage of corporations and state legislators. So just let that sink in for a minute. That sounds like the dream team that nobody wants. (laughs) Exactly. It sounds just like a money laundering scheme of sorts. (laughs) No. What? No. (laughs) Our government never. No. Uh, Now, ALEC provides a place for state legislators and private sector members to collaborate. This is their terminology. Collaborate on model bills and draft legislation that members may customize and introduce for debate in their own state legislators. So they're acting as basically like a meet and greet group where they can kind of like cross promote and get together to discuss what would be great legislation. Now, there are some key players in this game. And Alec is involved with a lot of high profile groups. Some of them aren't there anymore, but also some of them are there under a different name or guise. So keep that in mind as well. Some of their key players are none other than Coke Industries. That does not surprise me in the least. (laughs) I know. They were the number one guys. Uh, Walmart, Google, eBay, Microsoft, Facebook, McDonald's, Coca-Cola, Kraft Foods, Procter & Gamble, the Bill Gates Foundation, Amazon, and Blue Cross and Blue Shield. That's just a small handful. Wow. So they often hold these very large conferences and invite the members and some non-members to mix and mingle, basically over the slow destruction of American democracy. (laughs) But, you know, righteous causes, of course. Yeah, of course. (laughs) So I'm just going to name a couple of uh, legislation issues that they have looked at. And then I'm going to deep dive into a few of them uh, and tell you about some horrendous cases that they were involved in. (laughs) So um, in the beginnings of ALEC, they really pushed uh, anti-LGBTQ laws, especially in the 80s. Uh, Specifically in 1985, ALEC published a memo that opposed the current homosexual movement. That's in quotes. That is their direct, (laughs) that is their direct quote. Oh my God. And they said that homosexuality is a conscious choice and that pedophilia was rampant. And this is another quote, one or more dominant practice within the homosexual world is pedophilia is what they said. Wow. If you remember, if you remember the eighties, if you remember Ronald Reagan, That's not an uncommon thing, but they kind of helped to push the government to not act during the AIDS crisis. Yeah, big time. So out of the gate here, already (laughs) killing people. Yeah, there's actually, if you want to know more about that, there's a great episode of Behind the Bastards on how Nancy Reagan kind (laughs) of helped to really stifle the AIDS movement. And, I mean, the Reagans were not great for the LGBT community at all. They weren't great Uh, for anybody, okay? No. (laughs) No. There is a wonderful punk band called Reagan SS that you should listen to. (laughs) Oh, nice. It is about, it is all about Ronald Reagan, the 80s, and how it's full of white supremacists who are trying to murder everyone. Oh, my God. You could get so much material out of that. (laughs) Yeah. There's also Reagan Youth. I mean, honestly, there are just so many punk bands that have association (laughs) with how much they despise Ronald Reagan. Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
So they are also very interested in privatizing schools and voucher systems. So they have done a lot of legislation about that. They're also uh, very into voter ID laws. <laughs> and we oh all my. know how horrible voter ID laws are. Uh, yeah. They also have assisted with laws allowing energy companies to withhold information um, from the public. This is specifically regarding fracking and drinking water, which we've talked about a little bit, but the issues in South and North Dakota, uh, mm-hmm. specifically with all of these organizations who have been fracking and contaminating all of the drinking water, specifically in uh, reservations and specifically hurting indigenous peoples. I know recently there was a great win uh, about getting a fracking company kicked out of South Dakota. Yeah. So I hope there's more of that on the way. But they were very much involved in legislation that allowed fracking companies not to fully disclose information about what was happening to things coming out of their plant and going into the earth. So. Gotcha. (sighs) Another amazing thing that they are involved in was the privatization of prison systems. They helped to write the three strike laws, and they also assisted with tough on crime initiatives. This was in the late 80s, early 90s. Boo. Yes. They are also really involved, not just in the privatization of prisons, but in the uh, way that we use um, labor from prison systems. Oh, God. So if you're familiar, specifically in California, California has the biggest amount of um prison labor Mm -hmm. they actually i just found this out a couple days ago they actually use prisoners to fight forest fires really so there is an npr news article that i was listening to i believe it was by the british affiliates but they talked about there was a gentleman who fought the forest fires a couple years ago when they were really 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 bad Mm -hmm. and when he got released because he went to jail for theft Like, uh, I think it was like Grand Theft Auto or something. Yeah. And when he got released, he wanted to become a firefighter. And he fought those forest fires. Yeah. For, I think it was a year that they were going on. When he got released, he could not become a firefighter because he had a criminal record, even though he had extensive training and was on the job. They would not allow him to become a firefighter. So I find that very interesting that... We're allowing all of these people in prison systems who are on the lower end of the criminal system. Like, it's mostly people who are involved with, like, uh, theft and um, drugs that mm-hmm. are allowed to do these jobs. But then when they're released because they have a criminal record, they can't do any of the jobs uh, as a civilian because of their criminal record, even though they have extensive backgrounds in that particular job. So – yeah. It's it's just it's just fucking stupid. It's there's I, no like <laughs> Yeah. It's almost like it's a prison industrial complex uh, or something. Almost. <laughs> I do remember almost. um hearing that story and finding that really weird because one of the issues um that people who are coming out of prison have is finding employment and mm-hmm. um while some programs have gotten a lot better at helping people with criminal convictions on their record find employment, something like that, which seems so very obvious. I mean, you wouldn't have to do necessarily, I mean, maybe you would, but there's some extra schooling and training and stuff to become a firefighter. But you would already have like a step up having done that while you were in jail. I don't know why uh, you wouldn't give those people an opportunity 
especially if you think that prison reforms people as much as it should yeah to come out and and work in like a fire department but you know also, maybe that's I'm such a dangerous crazy. job yeah it's such a dangerous job that you would want anybody who is willing yeah. to put their life on the line to do that yeah i, I don't know I, I just think it's stupid um yeah so the other crazy thing that they were involved in was uh, a lot of ag-gag bill legislation in the 90s, which if you're familiar with ag-gag, which is agriculture, it's a lot of uh, industrial farming, and we want to try to keep some of the way that they run industrial farms secretive. Okay. Um, This also goes along with people who go undercover in industrial farms and record yeah. Uh, animal abuse and mistreatment and all of that fun stuff that happens regularly with industrial farming. Okay. It's fucked. <laughs> but another crazy thing that Alec was involved in was the big tobacco industry. Now, Alec fun- was funded by the tobacco industry almost exclusively in the 70s and 80s. And they really fought to have some of the science that was coming out and and the um, legislation for people to become aware that, you know, smoking kills and smoking causes cancer, they were really pushing back and trying to dispute the science. Gotcha. <laughs> so they were trying to, because I don't know if you've ever been to Canada, but in Canada, they have pictures of like cancerous lungs on the packages of cigarettes. Yeah, They do that, and I think, actually, in the UK, too. Yeah, there's quite a few countries that do that. They were trying yeah. to push for that here in the United States, and ALEC was one of the organizations that helped in preventing that information going on packages of cigarettes. Now, in a funny twist of fate, um, the tobacco industry has turned into the vaping industry. I don't know if you're aware of that, but yes. almost all of the vaping companies are owned by Big Tobacco. Yep. And so now there is a push for them to switch legislation over to make it sound like vaping is just as bad as as uh, cigarettes, which we haven't heard any legislation really on that. I know there was just like controls with ages, mm-hmm. but Alec is also involved in that. So, <laughs> yeah, well, and a lot of the stuff with vaping um, recently had to do with, like you said, ages and marketing toward children because things like Juul, which has probably become the most synonymous when you think of like the vaping industry was marketing a lot of like fruit flavors and fun flavors mm-hmm. and that candy. was that was a big problem <laughs> yeah yeah um mm-hmm. honestly big tobacco could take up its own like three episodes <laughs> on our it show. Really could. yeah and another funny thing that was kind of a weird twist of fate is so initially that Alec was involved in a lot of uh, legislation to block EPA and to block all kinds of, you know, environmental protection. They have supported lots of efforts in various states to withdraw from regional climate change compacts, which we have also nationally briefly done because of, again, he who shall not be named. Yep. But now Alec has a relationship with Tesla, and they've actually been recently rallying legislation for electric cars and kind of positing it as, oh, it's environmentally friendly. So you can see this kind of dichotomy within Alec where it's like, wherever the money is, they will follow. So they're simultaneously trying to promote legislation to help Tesla to get electric cars and green energy cars going 
but also in that exact same breath are trying to get states to withdraw from climate change compacts. So it's like two different sides of the same coin. Oh yeah, but and this is the, so money common. is getting tossed. Yeah, is so common go. in federal lobbying. <laughs> mm-hmm. So I wanted to cover two larger uh, legislative issues that Alec has been involved with. One of them everyone should be very familiar with. It involves the NRA, <laughs> and the other one involves Coke Industries. So. These are the two largest organizations that have been involved with ALEC, and they have pumped the most money into this um, legislative group. So I kind of wanted to talk about the cases that involved them. Now, I'm sure you are very, very familiar with the murder of Trayvon Martin and the whole entire debate about stand your ground laws. But... Are you aware that it was backed by ALEC in conjunction with several state legislators and the NRA? I was not. So, on February 26, 2012, the murder of Trayvon Martin led to increased public attention on Stand Your Ground gun laws, which opened the door to an investigation involving ALEC and its nefarious ways. Groups like Color of Change and Common Cause started to rain down on ALEC, which I don't know if you're familiar with these groups, but Color of Change is a civil rights organization out of California. They have designed kind of campaigns that were uh, very powerful to sort of end practices that unfairly hold Black people back and champion solutions that move everyone forward. Okay. So they're a, a social justice organization. Yeah. Um, they started in 2005 after the Hurricane Katrina disaster because of, oh, I mean, if, if you were alive during Katrina, you you know oh that there God. was a lot, a lot of problems down there involving the police, involving uh, FEMA not funding, involving letting people sit on their roof and, and basically die. It was a horrible, horrible disaster. Oh, yeah. Um, so they started after that hurricane and they have just been continuing to move forward to try to help black people. The other organization is called Common Cause, which is a Washington watchdog group that the organization has this tagline called Holding Power Accountable. And their mission statement is to uphold the core values of American democracy. We work to create open, honest, and accountable government that serves the public interest, promotes equal rights, opportunity, and representation for all and empower all people to make their voices heard in the political process. So these two groups simultaneously were coming, like they went in and they were looking at all of the states who passed stand your ground laws or something to that effect. And they looked at the legislation and they realized that the legislation and the wording were almost identical across the board. So they were like, why are all of these groups using this exact same legislation. And they found out that it was uh, from ALEC. And when they dove deeper, they found out that it was written in coordination with the NRA. Oh, geez. Yes. So in 2005, ALEC was able to assist in getting stand your ground laws passed in 30 states. Now, the law states that a person can use deadly force when when they reasonably believe that they are in danger from threat of death, serious bodily harm, kidnapping, rape, or robbery, and then in quotations, or some other serious crimes, which it's limited in some areas, but there are some states who (laughs) allow stand your ground laws for really inane things. Yeah. Now, 
<laughs> yeah, Florida. Uh, We're looking at you. Um, <laughs> now, the legislation on that sounded pretty logical until you got to the last little bit about robbery. The question about whether or not robbery or intent to commit robbery warrants death. Now, I say no. Yeah, I agree. That's just my personal belief. If somebody's yep. trying to steal my shit or whatever. If they're trying to cause me harm or my sweet little baby wiener dog, then my tune is changed. Yeah, I will also say, too, <laughs> that I feel like stand your ground laws um, have the same uh, standard of fear of danger as police shootings do, which is very low. I mean, yeah. it's a very low bar to say I felt my life was in danger. And so I shot this person. Mm-hmm. And that's not a great excuse and it's very easy to say yeah i felt like i was in danger for a very small um infraction so not a fan yeah and we've covered we've covered a lot of cases where people claimed self-defense and we have covered a few that have kind of invoked the stand your ground law uh Mm -hmm. so to speak but when it comes down to it Uh, A lot of the people who are involved in the court cases with stand-your-ground laws are people who are carrying guns or rifles on a regular basis. Mm -hmm. And I feel like, especially with the Trayvon Martin case, that that particular person and a few other people in more recent news, they wanted to use their gun. And they just wanted an excuse to use their gun. Oh, yeah. So, I mean... Yes. If you are actually being attacked, I feel like you have the right to defend yourself. But there is a line that is drawn whether you have intent to be malicious or not. Mm -hmm. Um, Shooting someone square in the chest to kill them, I feel like, is malicious intent. Shooting to maim, that's different. So we have to take all of these nuances into consideration when we're talking about this because the law is so broad and sweeping, we have to understand how can it actually be applied? Where is it legitimate and applicable? Yeah. (laughs) In Florida alone, self-defense claims tripled after uh, the stand your ground laws were uh, passed. So every asshole with a gun was out there claiming self-defense, right? And again, we have to look and see where it actually is applicable. Mm -hmm. The law... When it's in practice, there, I mean, statistically, there is a huge gap in racial disparity amongst black and white people when this law is applied. So they may not have thought about it, it being racist when they, you know, created the legislation, but when it was being practiced in, you know, the judicial system, there was a huge racial disparity. So again, yeah all the nuances that are involved in that. Yeah. Now, in some cases, like Joe Horn, who was out of Texas, which, of course, Texas is a very big stand-your-ground law uh, state, uh, he repeatedly was asked by dispatchers when he called 911 not to interfere as the police were literally a block down the street. Okay? So wow. You can see that there is a significant flaw in the practice of Stand Your Ground. So Joe Horn had a gun on him. He called 911. The dispatcher said, do not engage. The cops are right around the corner. And he shot the person, I believe, several times. 
point blank in the chest. <laughs> wow. So, you know, we have to think about stuff like this. I mean, people who are involved in these cases appear very, very, very trigger happy. Mm-hmm. And they're more, more inciting this standard ground law in the protection of property. And it's not actually involving and the cases that I just discussed are not involving people actually coming in contact with someone and causing bodily harm or potential murder. Yeah. And so that's where the issue lies. I don't think that robbery is the same as bodily harm, right? So we have to think about how, in especially this current climate, those types of laws are going to be used against you know, other people. Mm -hmm. Now, the NRA has its own issues. (laughs) And because they are such a major player in ALEC, they were able to push a lot of pro-gun, pro-gun legislation through with the assistance of ALEC. Now, after the murder of Trayvon Martin, a mass exodus of people and corporations left ALEC. Like, it just, everybody was out the door because they got called out on their kind of crazy nefarious practices so some of the organizations that left alec right after this happened was coca-cola microsoft bank of america and general motors of course that seems you know pretty meaningless when there are about a dozen more groups like that out there that all these organizations went to i mean alec is not an anomaly there's lots of groups like alec so just because they left ALEC doesn't mean they're not in a thousand other lobbying legislative organizations. Yeah. I, the one thing <sighs> I will say currently about the NRA is that uh, I know a, one or a couple of its members are currently under investigation for mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> misusing of funds, we'll say. And the NRA is not doing so hot at the moment because nope. of lack of funding. So... We'll see what happens with that in the next couple of years. They might not even exist as we remember them within yeah. the next like five years, but they'll probably yeah. morph and change. I mean, there. Yeah, I don't, I don't have a problem with people like owning guns or wanting to shoot a gun. No, it's it's a problem when we use those guns as incitement to violence or as an mm-hmm. excuse to commit violence against other people. Yeah, if you want to go shoot your gun, great. I I mean, I have a fucking Foyd card. I've shot a gun. I own a crossbow. Like, you know, it's whatever. You own a crossbow? <laughs> I, I was I an no archer idea. for a, a very long time. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Um, I'm learning new things I, about you today, Janelle. <laughs> I did archery in high school to the point where I thought about doing it as a profession. Like, people who yeah. go and do, like, the cross-country, like shooting stuff that's cool they have that for archery i know um i'm a sagittarius so it's my destiny to be an archer Uh, (laughs) (laughs) no i think it's fun and it's you know it's a great activity to do it's it's i don't know it's kind of meditative for me but people feel that way about guns too you know like they just like to go and shoot at a range Mm -hmm. totally not hurting anyone that's totally fine. Mm-hmm. Um, but when we start passing legislation where it's like, you can shoot people if you feel like they're looking at you sideways, that I get a little like, uh, guys, about. Yeah, so. that's, that's a little <laughs> bit of a problem. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm very, like, into people governing themselves and being in control of their own destiny. But also in the same breath, 
I'm like, let's not hurt one another at the same time. (laughs) Yeah. So the last issue that I'm going to discuss involving Alec is one that you have probably heard of. I think one of the biggest fuck you legislations that Alec has ever backed thus far is the fight for asbestos. Oh, yeah, you heard me. They are fighting for asbestos. Seems like a weird thing. So Alec has promoted a model bill that limits liability for parent companies that acquire subsidiaries responsible for asbestos-related injuries. So if you're like a big, big group, like, I don't know, Coke Industries maybe that buys like a little, little tiny guy, like maybe Georgia Pacific Best Wall, and then suddenly there are claims of unsafe working environments and sickness due to asbestos exposure, the large parent company, a la Coke Industries, could be, like, totally protected. Oh, my God. Okay. (laughs) So this stupid-ass shenanigans started pretty recently, actually, in 2015. Okay. Because we still have asbestos everywhere. (laughs) Yeah. I I mean, I don't know. If you're not familiar or if you've never seen those gut-wrenching commercials about mesothelioma. Asbestos causes cancer, which is what mesothelioma is, and it's an aggressive form of lung cancer, and it is caused by the inhalation of asbestos. Now, asbestos is a very, very, very fine silica particulate that you cannot see. It gets kicked up into a dust and you inhale this dust and it scars your lungs by cutting it little tiny cuts into your lungs. Um, So when you inhale this asbestos, it's just chippy chopping you up from the inside. Ooh. Now asbestos is used or was used. I think there's a little bit of use still, but not a whole lot in um, houses and cars because it is a form of fire resistant sort of, you know, foaming or whatever Mm -hmm. i guess it's kind of a hard foam i have a wee bit of asbestos in my house it's Mm -hmm. in the basement it's around one pipe (laughs) yeah so most of the victims that have or will get mesothelioma are public servants veterans firefighters and teachers who are exposed to asbestos in old schools Yeah, when you were talking about, honestly, the first thing that I thought of when you said asbestos is our old high school, because there's definitely still asbestos in there. And I think... Oh, you um, mean the one that they turned into the middle school now? Yes, it's currently currently our town's middle school. That also has a nuclear fallout shelter? Yep, (laughs) which I still love. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But part of the thing with asbestos is it's honestly a lot of the time... Uh, safer to not remove it because of um, all of the particles that are released. And I think the cost of having the specialty people come out with all of the hazmat suits and all the protections that are necessary is way higher than and way more dangerous than just leaving it up, Uh, which is why we still see it it in a lot of places. Yeah. So I consulted with someone when we moved into our house because it literally is like a maybe an inch and a half strip of uh, 
asbestos foam around the seam of a pipe in our basement in the far back corner. And mm-hmm. I consulted with someone and I was like, so what should we do? Should we cover it? Should we leave it? Should we have it removed? They were like, you can cover it if you want, but just like, that's it. Like, don't touch it again. Um, yeah. The more you touch it, the more it kicks up dust. And it's in a part of the basement where nobody goes. It's not attached to anything. It's not by a ventilation system. It's like isolated. So it's not that yeah. big of a deal. But if you're thinking about people like, again, our school, the basement mm-hmm. was filled with asbestos. I'm sure the ceiling in the very, very upper part of the school is filled with asbestos. It's an insulator. Um, oh, yeah. If it's near ventilation systems and, you know, people are moving around, it's going to get kick up dust and there's going to be asbestos everywhere. Mm-hmm. <sighs> but it, it really affects people who are in jobs that don't pay that much. Like you're thinking of firefighters and teachers and veterans who are, you know, all already not paid well. And now they're getting lung cancer and they want to make sure that their families are taken care of when they die. And so they sue the people who, you know, forced them to work in and around asbestos. And now they can't get any money because Coke industries, um, so Coke argued that Bestwall was only a minor user of asbestos, but construction workers were exposed to multiple sp- sources of asbestos while they were working. And since many of the responsible parties no longer exist, victims' lawyers are forced to sue more than one company. So Coke was spending $160 million a year defending this subsidiary against asbestos lawsuits. So, of course, they want to pass legislation that would limit the amount of, you know, times or people that a victim can sue for, Mm -hmm. you know, this kind of malpractice, so to speak. So, Coke could have done something smart by setting up a trust fund from the beginning when it acquired Bestwall so that it would automatically be able to pay out victims with that money. But instead of doing that, instead of just setting up a trust fund from which they can draw money from... They decided to fight every single lawsuit individually, which is why they were spending $160 million a year. I mean, it just wasn't a smart practice to begin with. If they would have just taken the hit initially by sending up the trust fund, all of this could have been avoided. So while they are fighting every single lawsuit, in the same time, they slowly began putting Bestwall into bankruptcy. So when that company goes into bankruptcy and they no longer exist, then they don't have to pay out the lawsuits, essentially, is what the principle was. But because Coke actually owned them, and even though they were going out out of business and filing for bankruptcy, they were still owned and possessed by a company that was not bankrupt. So they could sue Coke Industries. Okay. So that's where they were like, we need to stop this legislation. because. The company Bestwall was the one who was poisoning them, right? But if Bestwall files for bankruptcy, they no longer exist as a company. However, mm-hmm. when you're a subsidiary of, of a larger company, you're, til- you're still technically owned, even if you file for bankruptcy. You're yeah. still owned. They Coke Industries still bought Bestwall. They still own Bestwall, even if that company went filed for bankruptcy. So all of these people who... Worked for Bestwall, decided they were going to try to sue Coke. This is why they decided that legislation against this should be created. In case people weren't listening. (laughs) Oh my gosh. So we're going to look specifically at legislation that was passed in Missouri. But this shit was trying to be pulled off 
in a bunch of different states and also federally. Okay. Now, Missouri Republican State Rep. Bruce DeGroote introduced this legislation about asbestos lawsuits with the goal of preventing people suing and getting multiple payouts from different companies. He claims that it was to prevent double dipping. Now, this is from an article. DeGroote is an attorney for an insurance defense firm, which represents dozens of insurers who have clients that are companies responsible for mesothelioma-related claims. One of the firm's clients is Nationwide Insurance. Nationwide, which is also a part of ALEC, was openly backing this bill in Missouri. Here's a quote. The Asbestos Transparency Act, which was passed in Missouri, bears a striking similarity to Alex's Asbestos Claims Transparency Act because it was, in fact, drafted by partnering companies. When DeGroote introduced the bill onto the floor, there was some emotional exchanges amongst reps, and I wanted to cite this exchange because I think it's really important to frame it. When people are assisting with these legislations, they're thinking about dollars and cents, and they're not thinking about people. And I feel like this exchange really gets to the crux of the problem with legislations backed by companies. And when we think of people as dollar signs, the first legislator to speak was Republican Representative Steve Cookson, who was suffering from liver cancer. I have been up here for eight years, and most bills that we talk about are about protecting somebody's money. This bill is designed to protect out-of-state companies and insurance companies. Cookson went on to say that in the past, he had been supportive of some tort reform bills. I reflect back now, and you know, I have a personal situation going on right here. I think a lot more about life and death. I would ask you, did you ever contemplate the way you want to die? He asked of DeGroote. Well, that's a bit personal, responded DeGroote with a nervous laugh. Well... So do you want to die a slow death where you lay in bed and suffocate to death? Asked Cookson. DeGroote responded, I would not like that, no. Cookson went on to say that for the time he had left in legislator, he wanted to make sure he was on the side of those laying in the hospital for a long, long time suffering, surrounded by their families. I can't bring myself to be in support of anything that would compromise a person's ability to be made whole and their family to be made whole because they had to leave this world in a horrible fashion in an abbreviated time that they would have been expected to live. This bill would make it so that many victims would never see their day in court. Now, when I read that the first time, I almost started crying. (laughs) Yeah. Because this man is dying of cancer. And Mm -hmm. he realizes, you know, he's able to provide for his family in his death. But these people, again, like we stated, are people who aren't making a lot of money and who have jobs that are not, you know, great with insurance. And um, they are afraid for their family. They're afraid and they want to make sure that they're taken care of. Yeah. All of these all of these bills are doing are protecting corporations and they don't give a shit about people. Always. Um, That's always what it is. <laughs> so. ALEC does not disclose its members list nor the origins of its model bills, and they also claim to hold completely open meetings. And I wanted to bring this up because this is exactly why we have problems with legislation and bills and this sort of secret backhanded dealings and closed door bullshit. Now, they claim that they've been holding open meetings since 2003 but they have actually had more closed door meetings 
than the former. In 2013, the Washington Post columnist Dana Milbank was turned away from the ALEC annual policy summit and told that the subcommittee meetings and task force meetings were closed door, which they're not. So they pretty much have about zero transparency when it comes to drafting their legislative agendas, which, again, so they're a nonprofit. And if you know anything about a nonprofit or have ever worked with a nonprofit, you know that they absolutely cannot do that. Very few items are allowed to be closed door meetings. Generally, it's financial bids and employment discussions. Mm-hmm. But in the end, everything is audited and made public record because those organizations are tax free and rely on government help and public generosity. So you can look up your favorite or local nonprofit organization or a museum, and you will be able to find who works there, what their job is, what their operating costs are, how much each person makes because they are a nonprofit and they have to disclose that information. Now, this is a major issue with nonprofit groups like ALEC because it's very clear that they are profiting from their agendas. They are extremely criminal. Um, mm-hmm. I would and like to end my little tidbit with saying that if you have ever seen or heard of a legislation going on and you're like, that doesn't seem right, that seems strange, look into it. Figure out who is proposing that bill, why is it going to your state legislative floor or federally, and really see just how many corporations and how many legislative bodies like ALEC are actually pulling the strings. It's an election year. And I know that information is super duper hard to sift through right now. But I really want to make sure that people take the time to actually fully investigate the people that they're voting for. And make sure that you don't just look at the quick facts list of of what their policies are, but also look with who they worked with, what their jobs are, and look into their policies deeper so that you know that when you're electing somebody, they might be in the back pocket of ALEC. They might be working for a lobbying group that is not up to par or kosher. Just do your due diligence. Uh, Make sure that we're putting people in place that are going to play fair and that um, aren't just doing it for extra cash. Amen, sister. That is ALEC. (laughs) that's alec and boy howdy (laughs) crazy Mm -hmm. i feel gross after listening to that (laughs) i know (laughs) everything is gross Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. So I decided to look into what is probably one of the larger lobbying scandals and... It's so, there's a lot. It's a lot of stuff. (laughs) But I'm going to be looking at Jack Abramoff and the Indian lobbying scandal. 
Now, before I start, there's a couple things I want to say. First of all, like I said, this whole thing is a huge story that is condensed down into half of a podcast episode. So there's going to (laughs) be stuff that um, is not included that was happening simultaneously with other lobbying efforts. And Jack Abramoff himself has a very rich history in lobbying. So if you want to look at any additional information, I really encourage you to do so. But I had to kind of pull the main points because like we said in the beginning, this kind of stuff is a rabbit hole and it's really easy to get off track one way or another. The other thing I want to say is the use of the term Indian versus indigenous is used quite a bit Mm -hmm. because this actually happened in the – between the – early 90s to the early 2000s. So that's kind of the terminology that they used then. Yeah, I mean, there are still some indigenous groups that are okay with using the terminology Indian and Native American. Um, Yeah, just check with your check with your local local natives to figure out what the best practice is. (laughs) Yes, I just wanted to throw that out there. Because when we do these things, um, especially if they're from the past, I tend to just write what is in my research um, Mm -hmm. because that is how it happened. So I just wanted to put that out there as a little preface to this whole thing. So let's uh, start with a very light background on Jack Abramoff. So some big career milestones include being the national chairman of the College Republican National Committee from 1981 to 1985. He was a founding member of the International Freedom Foundation, which was a self-described anti-communist organization who allegedly received financial backing from apartheid South Africa, which is just kind of like, what? (laughs) (laughs) Abramoff also served on the board of directors for the National Center for Public Policy Research, which is a conservative think tank, and As far as his lobbying career goes, he was top lobbyist for Preston, Gates, and Ellis from 1994 to 2001, and later for Greenberg, Traurig, until March 2004. Now, as I said, this is a very brief history that only includes a few organizations that Abramoff was involved in, but I really cannot understate how many more uh, organizations and foundations and think tanks and everything that he was involved in. It's it's crazy the amount of pots he had his hands in. <laughs> now, while he had been working in lobbying for a while, Abramoff didn't start working in the field of tribal lobbying until later in the 1990s while he was employed by Preston Gates and Ellis, who was based in Seattle. Now, tribal lobbying is not a new phenomenon. Any group that has uh, so any sort of like political interest will eventually hire lobbyists if they can't afford it because that is <laughs> typically the way things get done or passed in uh, state and local governments. In this case, the Choctaw had already been doing federal lobbying on their own with some success, but they realized in the early 90s that 
many of the congressional members who were sympathetic to their issues were either retiring or had been defeated by this wave of Republicans that entered Congress in 1994. So in order to find someone more aligned with the views of the current Congress, the Choctaw Tribes Specialist on uh, Legislative Affairs, Nell Rogers, had received a suggestion to get in contact with Preston Gates and shortly thereafter hired Abramoff and the firm. Their job in this case was to represent the Mississippi Band of Choctaw Indians who were attempting to establish gambling on reservations. The first big chunk of work included defeating a bill that sought to use the unrelated business income tax to tax Native American casinos. Abramoff chose to take a college friend and fellow Republican, Grover Norquist, uh, to activate his advocacy group, Americans for Tax Reform, to help defeat the bill. The Choctaw paid $60,000 for the work, and the bill was successfully defeated. So not nothing too crazy there, but it's the start of uh, this sort of tribal – he does a lot of work in – tribal lobbying from this point Mm -hmm. on. In the late 90s, another bill came up in Alabama state that would allow casino-style gaming at dog racing tracks, which is something that would provide more competition for the Choctaw casino business. Abramoff reached out to another Republican colleague whose name is Ralph Reed. Now, Reed was also a lobbyist and political consultant, but really his sort of wheelhouse was the Christian section of the population. Uh, He also had his own firm called Century Strategies, which he offered up to perform some services for Abramoff. For this, he was asking for a $20,000 a month retainer. Uh, shortly thereafter, Abramoff convinced Preston Gates to hire Reed as a subcontractor, and he received a total of $1.3 million from the Choctaw. They then decided instead of sending the money through Preston Gates, the Choctaw would instead pay Reed's firm through Norquist's Americans for Tax Reform, and ATR would send up to $300,000 at once to uh, Reed's firm. So already, it's getting a little hiding the money sort of thing, where it's like, yeah. well, maybe, you know, run it through this thing already. In the early 2000s, when Abramoff moved from Preston Gates to Greenberg Traurig, he took the opportunity to sort of like assemble this dream team, most of which was made up of former congressional staffers and aides, along with lobbyists uh, that he had brought over from Preston Gates. Now, one of these former aides was Tony Rudy who served as chief of staff to Tom DeLay, who was the Republican representative from Texas. And honestly, if you get a moment, look into Tom DeLay because he had his own scandals and things, (laughs) not including this. Honestly, who hasn't? (laughs) A A lot of fraudulent things like tax evasion and some other crazy shit. But that's a that's another rabbit hole you could go down. (laughs) 
But this was really sort of the beginning of what would become a pattern of hiring former congressional aides to join his team. Now, because of his work with indigenous tribes, Abramoff was really trying to get a contact in the Department of the Interior, which houses the Bureau of Indian Affairs. He was able to find these contacts in Italia Federici, who was a former political aide to the Secretary of the Interior, Gail Norton. And in the West Wing, he was able to find Susan Ralston, who was executive assistant to Carl Rove. And if you don't know Carl Rove, Carl Rove was actually the senior advisor to George W. Bush. It gets confusing. Stick with me. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, would it be the government if it wasn't confusing? Yeah. There's a lot of names and things that I'll throw out there. Most of them are not super important except for this guy. Around around this time that he was getting all the contacts in the White House, he began working with a man named Michael Scanlon, who is about the only person you need to to remember for this one. Mm Mm-hmm. Michael Scanlon was a former communications director for Tom DeLay and a lobbyist. And Scanlon and Abramoff began email communications in which their plan to commit fraud began during this time period that later was referred to as Gimme Five. There's a... uh, I'm covering my face right now. (laughs) No, it's all good. I love it. Gibby Five is a great name for, like, a fraud investigation. (laughs) It really is. (laughs) Once he had finished his career as a communications director, um, Scanlon decided to set up his own public affairs consulting firm called Campaign Capital Strategies. He then reached out to Abramoff for help expanding his client base. The plan was to increase it at least $3 million per year and then – Using his connections within the public affairs space, Scanlon was intending to sell the company for three times the price and then split the profit with Abramoff. And all of this is documented via email, which I'm like, again, documenting your crimes. Let's let's just not do that. Wait, I shouldn't be detailing in a journal everything I've ever done wrong. Especially in this digital uh-huh. age where it's really hard to delete things that you want to delete. Just Yeah, don't guys, the internet is it. forever. So <laughs> unless Everything. you're like a mastermind hacker, which I mean point five of us are. Yeah. It's gonna be there. It's gonna be there always. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All those embarrassing MySpace pictures still exist, oh guys. My God. <laughs> I just oh dated my God. myself. Don't hard. remind me. <laughs> Now, around this time, the Louisiana Cushada tribe were working to renegotiate a gambling contract with the state of Louisiana. And due to the fight that they were expecting on the matter, they were considering hiring a federal lobbyist to do the job rather than just a uh, regular state lobbyist. Mm-hmm. A representative from the Chidinacha tribe of Louisiana suggested that they look into hiring Abramoff and Scanlon. So the two of them went and they made a pitch to the tribal council claiming that they could get things passed through the legislature and flaunted their ties to people within the Department of Interior. 
They also suggested that maybe participating in the delayed golf tournament and making lists of suggested contributions might help them gain access to politicians and get a little name recognition. You know, of course, the normal stuff. (laughs) While the tribal council didn't really understand what the relationship between Abramoff and Scanlon was, they decided to hire and pay the men separately. They agreed to place Abramoff on a retainer of $125,000 a month plus expenses and hire Scanlon's firm for uh, $535,000 for their initial work. This seemed to work out for them because in July 2001, Louisiana Governor Mike Foster approved the new gambling compact. Later in 2001, Abramoff was able to convince leaders in the Louisiana Cushada that Texas state was about to pass a law that allowed some forms of gambling which to them would make a difference because their casinos um, attracted a lot of business from the eastern part of Texas. And a related but competing tribe, the Alabama Cushada, were seeking to build a casino in the eastern part of the state. So it's all about these gambling laws that happen in other states. They do tend to relate to where the casinos are located if you pull your business from another state. If you have competing tribes trying to build casinos on other land, that's all going to affect your business. I will also Mm -hmm. say I don't believe that Texas at the time was that close to passing a law that allowed this uh, type of gambling stuff. It was kind of a setup a little bit. Mm -hmm. But like you said earlier, they follow the money. Mm hmm. Uh, Abramoff and Scanlon, because of this, were able to get nearly $4 million in additional fees that were supposed to go to grassroots efforts to kind of oppose this bill. But instead, Scanlon insisted $1 million be rooted through Greenberg Traurig. Abramoff and Scanlon they had actually planned to do this in order to make them like they wanted to make the firm look better on paper. They talk about keeping the firm in the top 10 lobbying firms for the year. So they just wanted to make the firm look better. But Mm -hmm. both the (laughs) tribe and the firm were deceived when the money was actually redirected as a donation to the Capital Athletic Foundation. And this foundation started, it was started by Someone you might have been able to guess, Jack Abramoff. Ho-ho! Yeah. Uh, they then suggested that the Cushada reached out to Christian evangelical conservatives by supporting Ralph Reed, um, which the trial complied with. Now, Reed was paid with money that first went to Southern underwriters, who then made payments to the American International Center, which was a shell corporation run by Scanlon. Very. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, And what they all didn't know is that Abramoff and Scanlon were skimming millions of dollars off the top of all of this money. Really? They didn't know that? Well, they said they didn't know. (laughs) I don't buy it. (laughs) There are a few other instances of Abramoff and Scanlon 
pitting tribes against each other, dramatically padding billing hour, billable hours in order to receive more money and skimming money off the top. But it will honestly get far more confusing and crazy if I were to include everything. If you want to learn more about the ins and outs of this case and some of that, like, more crazy stuff. I really suggest you watch the uh, 2010 documentary Casino Jack in the United States of Money. It really delves into Abramoff's past and his career in lobbying. Very good. But at the end of the day, what you need to know about this scandal is that lobbyists Jack Abramoff, Ralph E. Reed Jr., Grover Norquist, and Michael Scanlon charged uh, tribes an estimated $85 million in fees, dramatically overbilled their clients, secretly split the profits, and secretly lobbied against their own clients in order to get more money for lobbying services, which I'm just like, <laughs> it is the definition of playing both sides. It really is. Which to me is just insane. I mean, I guess if you're all about making more money, that would make sense, but it just seems so ethically wrong. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> <laughs> now, this, of course, resulted in both a federal and congressional investigation. There's going to be links to the congressional hearing documents in the show notes if you want to take a look at them. But the convictions for Abramoff and Scanlon are as follows. Jack Abramoff pleaded guilty to conspiracy, fraud, and tax evasion, was required to pay restitution of at least $25 million, for which he served three years and seven months in prison. He also owed the IRS $1.7 million in taxes. And Michael Scanlon pleaded guilty to conspiracy to bribe public officials and honest service services fraud, for which he received a 20-month sentence and was asked to pay over $20 million in restitution. In total, there were 21 people uh, who were charged in relation to this scandal, and in 2007, Congress amended the Lobbying Disclosure Act in direct response to Abramoff's deception. Now, this is, for me, this is the kicker of the whole, the whole thing. In what's an interesting twist, following the completion of his prison term and the writing of a book in 2011 called Capital Punishment, The Hard Truth About Washington Corruption from America's Most Notorious Lobbyists, which came out and really criticized the lobbying industry for being so corrupt. After all of that, <laughs> Abramoff became the first person convicted under the Lobbying Disclosure Act, which, again, was amended because of him. This is getting he meta. Became, I know. <laughs> He became the first person convicted under the Lobbying Disclosure Act, and in June of 2020, June of this year, he pleaded guilty to lobbying violations and criminal conspiracy for working to change federal law on behalf of the marijuana industry without registering as a lobbyist. Uh, you don't. He. This is definitely a person who does not learn from his mistakes. Nope. <laughs> Clearly, <laughs> definitely not. He hasn't uh, received his sentencing for this 
at the time of recording, but he can receive a maximum of five years for this. I honestly, because of his previous convictions, would not be surprised if he were to get a max sentence for this because he has already been in prison for fraud and lobbying violations. So like, I don't see why they wouldn't just be like, obviously, you haven't learned anything. I'm also curious if they can put in a ban on on lobbying from somebody, like if that's a thing that they do, because obviously, if you have these people who are consistently conspiring Hmm. to commit fraud, you would think a ban on lobbying is like, I don't know, the most appropriate response. But that is the story of Jack Abramoff and the Indian lobbying scandal. Man, I wish I could say that I was surprised, but you know. I know. I'm not. (laughs) (laughs) If you are thinking about going into lobbying and committing fraud of hundreds of millions of dollars? Maybe don't, first of all. And then listen to this podcast? Hey, it's Erin. And this is Jordan. Each week, we dig up the facts on fascinating felonies and mesmerizing misdemeanors. Join us as we prove that you don't have to know too much about the legal system to be crazy for a good true crime story. Subscribe to Crime Crazy on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And visit us at crimecrazypodcast.com. He doesn't even go here. Well, guys, that has been our episode for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. I did. (laughs) It was a fun one. It's definitely one that goes into, um, you know, one of my favorite areas, white collar crime. Uh, But also the deception of people within the government, which is kind (laughs) of shitty. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, every, everything is shitty <laughs> yeah. currently. So this episode is going to be coming out as we are in the midst of an event that we are very excited about. Janelle, do you want to talk about the uh, the Fringe Festival a little bit? Hey, guys. I don't know if you're aware of this. If you haven't been paying attention or listening for the past umpteenth episodes, we are in the Elgin Fringe Festival, bitches! <laughs> and you can catch our wonderful recorded event that we did at Side Street Studio Arts. Um, you can check us out, or if you want to buy a festival pass and see all of the amazing shows that you can get virtually straight from your mother truck and living room. Our topic is pretty great and it's pretty hilarious and fun and wonderful. And it was so fun to do. (laughs) Yeah, it was really fun. Um, But you can go to ElginFrenchFestival.com or you can head over to Side Street Studio Arts as well to find out more information. Um, It's a streaming uh, virtual experience. So you can kind of watch it at your leisure. There's no air date, but you have uh, basically the entire month of September and a little bit of October to catch not just our show, but everyone else who did an amazing virtual experience. And yeah, it's it's fun and spooky, ooky and weird. And Fringe Festival, I am involved in it in some capacity every year. And it is so fun. It's just so strange. That's all I can say. It's just like this <laughs> wonderful, beautiful, goofy, strange, fun time. 
and you that's should all i've ever wanted in my life it's so fun <laughs> i love it so yeah. much there's fringes everywhere but you know i gotta go to the one that's in my hometown of so, course go to elgin fringe festival <laughs> yeah that stuff is up right now as you listen mm-hmm. to it so go and check it out do it if you like this episode, you can find more episodes like this at BadTasteCrimeCast.com, where you will also find a link to our merch store. If you want to get like a t-shirt or a bag or, you know, something to coffee mug, <laughs> show your bad taste uh, pride, it's there. Yeah. It's all there. <laughs> um, there at the at BadTasteCrimeCast.com, you can also find links to our donate page if you wish to um support us on patreon we do this all for free that pays for basically our web hosting so yeah no (laughs) podcasting is not a money-making endeavor in case no it's not (laughs) i'm not unless you're roman mars um yeah there's like 10 percent of podcasts that actually make money out of the billion that exist yeah um but Mm -hmm. you'll also find a ton of bonus content over there you sure will (laughs) i mean there's i i'm like i'm trying to think of like what to point out but there's so much stuff over there um i know you did cocktails and conspiracies for a while Mm -hmm. um yeah there's some written content there you get behind the scenes stuff um you will be the first people to see any and everything that we do, if we do live shows, if we have new merchandise coming out, that all goes to our Patreon first, mm-hmm. and then the public. So you get a little bit behind the scenes. Um, I was a little bit quiet in the last month just because we started school, and it is yeah a, ro- a roller coaster. COVID times, guys. Oh my god! But again, we said there's a backlog of yes. all kinds of things. So. Yeah, yeah. Check it out. Um, so you can go and check that out. Janelle, do you have anything else before we wrap up today? No, guys. Just keep trucking along. <laughs> try try your hardest mm. <laughs> to be mm-hmm. nice to everyone. Yeah. And not commit acts like we talk about on this show. <laughs> yes. On that note, um, our sound and editing is by Tiff Fullman. Our music is by Jason Zaszewski, the Enigma. This has been the Bad Taste Crime Cast. We will see you in two weeks. Stay safe and goodbye. Bye. Some form.